Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Archaeology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Newman, and I'm an archaeologist and assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. And today I'll be talking with Timothy Papatat, a professor of anthropology and medieval studies at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, director of the Illinois State Archaeological Survey, and the Illinois State Archaeologist. And we'll be discussing his new book, Gods of Thunder, How Climate Change, Travel, and Spirituality Reshaped Pre-Colonial America. So welcome, Tim, and thanks so much for joining me today to talk about your book. Oh, thank you. And it's my great pleasure. Um, I think just to start us off, I wonder if you could kind of tell us a kind of brief bit about your background, a little bit about yourself and the the work that you do. Uh, Sure. Um, I kind of grew up uh, eating and breathing archaeology because it was all around me. I grew up in in southwestern Illinois and uh, and we did a lot of outdoor activities. And so I always thought I might become an archaeologist. and ultimately went off to Michigan for a PhD, which was at that time sort of the school to go to um, and uh, considered working in other parts of the world. Ended up coming back to sort of the Mississippian problem um, in the Midwest and Mid-South because I knew it so well already. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've since, since about that time, I had a series of research problems I always wanted to kind of resolve or at least contribute to. And I've been working on those for quite a while. And and that includes the really big questions, you know, these big historical questions of like how, how are people connected across the Americas? And that really then is the the what's behind this book. So did this book uh, come out of kind of uh, previous research projects that you've kind of built out of something that you've done before? Or is this kind of something separate that you've always wanted to do and now you're finally kind of realizing? Uh, yeah, I, I do think there's a, a, a renewed realization that that the topic was important, and it had been people had talked about it, and I had had conversations with an earlier generation of archaeologists who who uh, thought that this wasn't being pursued enough. Um, but the the turn towards more interest in climate change, and including my own research, where I'm interested both in historical particularities, you know, but also in well, how are those particularities being structured by the big changes that are out there in the world, uh, led me to, to to really think much more about this. Uh, you know, I've done some big projects around the Cahokia site and other places related to that. And there's a few findings here and there that also made me think like, what's going on here? And, and so to explain those, ultimately, you got to step way back and and look at the big picture. Well, I think one of the things that I noticed reading your book is that it is very different from a lot of the things that have been written about kind of archaeology and climate change. I mean, it's different in the sense of the argument that you're making, which is bigger and also kind of about spirituality, which is not often something people connect with uh, climate change. Um, But then it's also different in the style that the book is written. It's very accessible. It has kind of... uh, uh, you know, this narrative arc where you take us on a journey from north to south, you have these suggestions for places to visit. So um, can you talk a little bit about kind of, I guess, uh, you know, how you see this fitting in with other types of work in the archaeology of climate change or climate change in the past, and and also kind of your intended audience? I mean, is this the audience you always write for? Or is this a slightly different kind of book that you've, you've written? Uh. Let me take that last one first, because I, I have tried over the years to write for a popular audience, 
and uh, you know people who are educated and who are interested and really want to know more and or, and these are the folks that often more than archaeologists even ask big questions like well, how is that connected and archaeologists tend to shy away from some of those things um so uh i and i like writing in in this style and i i've always been interested in sort of narrative um, uh, style of writing as well so telling a story is fun uh, as a writer, I think, and um, it fits with kind of my approach generally. Now that the climate change part of that, though, and as you said, it's a little different because it's what I wanted to do with this book was actually pick up on a, kind of a very contemporary way of thinking about the past. Sometimes it's called new materialism, you know, or ontological approaches where you appreciate that people in different places and different times connected to their world in ways that maybe seem foreign to us. Um, we tend to be a bit more alienated from forces of nature, you know, or spirit, especially thinking of them as spiritual forces. But people in the past didn't, weren't. I mean, they, they were just one and the same thing. Climate and, you know, the weather is very much something that involves spiritual entities as people, you know, uh, relate to the, the weather. So I thought I could basically, um, bring a very contemporary kind of theoretical argument into, into the, the case of North America without letting people know that it's a fairly sophisticated theoretical argument and sneaking it in using a narrative. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I will say it's pretty sneaky, <laughs> but I didn't necessarily read the book and think, ah, oh, this is about new materialism. <laughs> um, so well done. Um but one thing that uh, I want to go back to something that you mentioned uh, earlier, you kind of alluded to earlier, and that um, I think is also a way in which the book is uh, kind of different, uh, is that, of course, most archaeologists tend to be regional specialists and kind of focus on their region, uh, you know, write about that region. Um, and, you know, your book does kind of take a wide swath of contemporaneous cultures across Central and North America. So uh, I wanted to ask both kind of how you um, defined, you know, where to start, where to end. You kind of take us on this journey that starts in Guatemala and goes all the way up to Cahokia uh, in Illinois, but then um, also how how you took undertook the, the research for the book. I mean, there's a lot of archaeological uh, information in, in each chapter. I mean, it's a yeah. lot to, to command. It did take me three or four years. To, to, to work all the way through it because I did have to do the research along the way. I mean, I was familiar with a lot of the basics and I'm more familiar with the Southwestern US and the Mississippi Valley in general. So that didn't take as much background research. Um, I think it, it was really important for me that I was hooked into the book as well so that I could maintain that kind of momentum to, to to do all that research as I was going through it. And the hook for me was uh, the Nevaez expedition, you know, and Cabeza de Vaca and the fact that here's, here's some people, not very successfully, but they did the kind of the same journey that I was trying to take the reader through. And that, and, and that account, and then thinking a lot about it and, and how good it is and how anthropological it is, really kept me going. And so that's that's why that is woven throughout the book because that's partly how I how I had to write the book. That's interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I was going to ask you a bit about kind of the the use of the uh, Cabeza de Vaca account as this kind of 
anchor in the book, right? That each chapter either starts with with a um, a reflection from that narrative that that is in the same place you're talking about, or kind of a comparative um, way of thinking. And um, so, did you? I mean, did you read that at some point and think, you know? I want to use this to think about a different kind of journey or did you kind of, were you working on the book and you came across that narrative? How did that kind of become the, the framework for you? Yeah, I think I started working on drafting the outline of the book. Um, uh, the Oxford editor, Stefan Veronka had said, you need, you need to write this book. So I said, okay, I'll kind of work on this. And as I was working on it, I, I had that, I had maybe, I hadn't read it all the way through. It's a short, just short narrative, but I still hadn't done it. But then I did. And then I thought, oh, my God, this is really there's a series of really golden nuggets in in that account and how they appreciate indigenous people. And then vice versa, you can tell the same things happening the other way. And they discover things that I think to help drive it forward, like, you know, gods, they're talking, they, they make observations about the very important gods of thunder, you know, that that the book is about. And it's right there in this account. Uh, so yeah, I guess it was a, a mutual symbiotic kind of back and forth right at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting narrative move. I mean, I can see where you said, you know, that you like to write, you like to think about the the story that you're telling. And it is interesting to have kind of these kind of mirrored journeys in a way, the, the, you know, the 16th century account, and then kind of your description of what's happening in the different places you take us through. And then and then the fact that at the end of each chapter, there's these nice little descriptions of if you want to visit these places, what to look for, what to do. It does kind of, you know, it does, uh, I think, prompt the reader to want to take a journey also, not just in the book, but to kind of physically go to these places. Yeah, so, yeah I hope so. And yeah. that, of course, that did that did that part of the book really is drawing on an, an earlier sense of a book that I was going to write that I never, it never really panned out and it became this book instead. And, um, and that really is rooted in a series of comparative seminars and the work of other people that, that has been, we have been talking about in meetings and, and, you know, in places like London or Santa Fe or whatever over the last 10 years, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like the kind of book that requires, that has just a lot of thinking, a lot of experience, a lot of research behind it. It's, I mean, as you said, it's like the big questions kind of require big efforts, right? Yeah. I almost had to write it. I almost had to write this book so I can go off and now do something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the book itself and, and we'll just kind of you know, take the listeners through the book a little bit. Um, but in the introduction, you kind of set the stage by talking about um, the medieval climate an anomaly or the medieval warm period. And, and you sort of tell us about some of the global implications. And then, of course, the book is focused on some of the, um, the local impacts. But can you kind of, you know, just give us a general sense of, of why this is a particularly important moment to look at these kind of, uh, you know, uh, cross-regional uh, historical events uh yeah uh i mean it was a uh, at least a, a hemispheric climatic shift that was important in the northern hemisphere not always in the same way and that that in and of itself is interesting because that's a lot like what we're seeing today the climate change happens differently in different regions or parts of the world and that's super important to appreciate so that you know we can kind of use the past then as 
some kind of gauge to think about the future. So uh, the medieval period seems to unfold like that, and it's it uh, the Earth was warming after a, a, a period of of uh, less than active volcanic activity on Earth. So things warmed up. Uh, so by the nine, well, the eight hundreds, um, that warming is significant in some parts of North America and Euro Eurasia, um, one or two degrees Celsius, and that's enough to, you know, make people do things differently. But interestingly, it, it it's alternatively wet and dry depending on where you are. So where it's dry, things, you know, civilizations might collapse, like the Maya. Uh, where it's wet and they're, you know, just wet enough. Mississippi Valley, you know, you're going to get corn production is going to be adopted and expanded. And that's exactly what happens. The really cool thing there is that then there's communication and the same gods seemingly, it's a pretty good case, I think, the same gods that you see dealing, people dealing with too much rain one place are also the ones dealing with not enough rain in some other place. So you get this big interdigitated kind of movement or a series of religious movements all historically tied together that happen. And that's very much like what happens in the old world, if you think about it. I mean, those the big you know, religions um, spread as uh, as well as, you know, states becoming more able to produce food and build up their their stateliness. Um, and so they're comparable in, in, in interesting ways. And maybe also, again, there's sort of lessons for today. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I think I had kind of uh, asked this question more or less before, but, but just to go back to it in terms of thinking about the, the scope of the journey that you take us on in the, the kind of, um, you know, most of the chapters of the book. So you, you start us off in Tikal in Northern Guatemala, right. And then sort of move, uh, progressively northward and end at Cahokia. Um, and so why, why Tikal? Why is, you know, why Northern Guatemala as the southernmost point of the journey? Why not say, I don't know, Costa Rica yeah. or Northern South America? It, yeah. It, it could have been, it could have been anywhere. I mean, it could have been anywhere in Maya world, I think. Um, I actually had the earlier iteration of this book. I had gone to, to call specifically um uh, for another reason. And so I had a lot of thoughts and, and sort of notes about Tikal. And, you know, it's it's the, the biggest really Maya city. So I thought, it's, I mean, it's just impressive in a way that almost everybody will be impressed when you walk through that. So I thought that let's use that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and then from there, maybe you can kind of just give a little overview of, you know, then you kind of trace us uh, or take us northward through I'm kind of you really, I'm making you work for this, aren't I? So yes, I'm sorry. So uh, we, we go from the Maya region into into central Mexico to kind of then give a bit of a backstory um, to the medieval period as it happens a little later. But first we have to look earlier what's going on, see the precursors for some of these um, gods and the temples that are involved. Uh, and then when we're looking at central Mexico, we're also then uh, we then turn look to sort of north um, eastern Mesoamerica, you know, um, and what's called the Huasteca, which is Tamaulipas and Veracruz right on the coast, and that's important because the that place kind of links the central Mexico and the Maya together because there were there was migration of Maya into that region, probably now at the beginning we think at the beginning of the the medieval warm period, 
which is really interesting because that gets us really close to the United States and things that didn't happen to the north of that. We kind of, we kind of, uh, uh, for, a, for a couple of chapters, we move all over and look at the Southwest, um, which is, uh, has its all, you know, a, a very complicated and, um, some ways so locally specific kind of history that doesn't always seem to mesh as well, but because it's its own entity, um, uh, over there, but then we swing up into the Southern Plains and, and there you, you probably have people who were traveling occasionally into Huasteca down to this Maya-esque, um, region in Mesoamerica. And from there, it's a hop, skip and a jump up to Cahokia. And so that's how the book kind of proceeds trying to show that there are these historical linkages. They, they manifest themselves slightly differently in different areas. So, so there's circular pyramid building, you know, from, from the Maya all the way up through central Mexico and Huasteca and all the way up into Cahokia. Uh, the Southwest, it's harder to make the argument. There's, there's the pyra- the pyramids are really more like um, elaborate architectural constructions of, you know, like terraced um, circular buildings. Um, so like, history happens a little differently there, I think, and the argument is still ultimately for similar kind of reasons of being tied into these religious movements. Yeah, it's interesting how, um, I mean, this is something that I think we all tell our students, but you know that that the past in some ways was much more connected than uh, than regions are in the present. Even the way we've been talking about, where archaeologists kind of tend to stick with their regional specialization, and then also you know the the um, the uh, difficulties produced by national borders and things like that. But that in the past, I mean, people. Uh, objects and ideas and information kind of flowed a little more freely than um, than they do in the present, and then we tend to assume, right? Yeah, that's right. And and people weren't afraid to walk, uh, and I'm sure there were some regions people avoided, but otherwise there was a general understanding that there were certain kinds of missions or trips that people were taking that you know others wouldn't necessarily molest them, and and that's where this cabeza de vaca. It shows that it, that's exactly what happens to them as they're moving through all these indigenous lands. Uh, so that is hard to wrap our heads around travel. Um, but it's important, I think, at this point to recognize that travel is also about learning and, and gaining knowledge. And for people in positions to need to know something at some place, let's say where there's some social development, you know, where there's the emerging city. The people who are are coordinating activities or who are in charge need to know what's in the outside world. So they're gonna they're gonna have to travel to find out and to you know answer the big questions so they can go back home and say, I know, and here you need to follow me because here's the way the world is. And and that ultimately sort of explains, especially in the time of climate change, it's even more important that those folks get to know um, the world around them. Yeah. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit, you mentioned the the circular uh, temple structures that kind of uh, that you see from Guatemala all the way up kind of in different, slightly different forms into um, what's now the United States. Um, but maybe you could talk about a couple of the other things that you trace along this journey. I mean, you have sort of certain gods that you focus on, um, the, the certain kinds of architecture, like you mentioned, but also um, specific uh objects that are used for ritual dances, like the the poles for voladores and the um, the uh, shell objects, like you have a few that are kind of uh, 
particular types of things that you can that help you trace these movements of people that might otherwise um, be difficult to to reconstruct. And, and all of these things are, or most of these things are associated with, in all of these various places, are associated with a wind that brings rain god, which has different names. And in the north, it would be called the thunderers or the thunder gods. Um, and, you know, Maya ha- has a different name than people in central Mexico, but it's, they're all very similar in that it's not necessarily the rain god, although the rain god works with this wind god, but this is the god that brings rain. And so it's like even more critical. First, you have to get the rain there. Uh, so it's kind of a storm god, if you will, right? And so apparently um, the the circular building, which is, and I won't, I won't, tell everybody why is it kind of a reference to water and rain generally um is then becomes the abode or a place where you also encounter this wind that brings rain guy especially when it's elevated so you're going up into the sky right and what do you see there if you're in if you're in belize or yucatan you know guatemala you see marine shell pendants you see a particular kind of dagger which is isn't exclusive to this god but he's associated with this god it's a, a distinctive kind of lancelet shaped pretty big and and uh um so a lot of mollusk shells uh these daggers uh p- the pole ceremonialism um and that's especially pronounced in this intermediate area Huasteca, uh, where you can still go see it today right um which is uh people basically hang from ropes and spin around and start at the top of this like hundred foot high pole. And while there's somebody playing a flute, which is of course a reference to a wind God. And these, these dancers or flyers spin around and in a, in a spiral fashion, go all the way to the ground. And that's generally an homage to this thunder God. And that's true all the way up into the plains where this a watered down version of the same ritual occurs and it's still practiced by some. And, and you see this at Cahokia. And the interesting about where you see these three or four things that I just mentioned is that there's a real history there. You can track them. It's not like they always did these things. They come as a set and they, and they move in and Cahokia is the best case. They, they come in when somebody goes traveling at the very beginning of the, fu- the foundations of that city, somebody who needs to know what gods are important and probably travel south, brings back the full package, puts it in place, and that becomes then Mississippian culture. That's really interesting about the, the package of, uh, of materials and ideas that sort of moves across the uh, the continent. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of kind of the way people talk about the Neolithic revolution, you know, that sort of like that it's the full assemblage that um, that what that's what's important. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's because, right, to do the to treat the gods correctly so that they don't get angry at you, you've got to do all the rituals involved. And so all the rituals means a whole set of things uh that would be have to happen simultaneously you can't just do one thing and you know it's not, it's not like oh that's a pretty knife i'm going to copy that like no that knife has power you can't just copy it or otherwise you're in violation of some supernatural rules so you have to do all the other things too and bring them all up together and have the right stories have the right songs have the right poetry that you say you know whenever you're you're using those things yeah hence package 
Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, is is really interesting about this for, for the book that you've written is that, again, I mean, we talked a little bit about the, at the beginning about how uh, this is sort of different from the way people tend to write about climate change in general and specifically climate change in the past. But I think um, I mean, one of the things that you you are really good at evoking through these material assemblages or the packages is is kind of the experience of of climate change. And um, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that one of the things that you do is to kind of investigate and tell stories that are centered on these very ephemeral things that people wouldn't necessarily think of as being the purview of the archaeologist, you know, things like weather and water and wind. Um, And so, I mean, how do you go about kind of investigating those things uh, in the, in the past? Um, It can be tricky. And, and so, and some readers might look at this book and think, oh, there's just not enough for me to be convinced, you know, that this is happening because it, that sort of knowledge does rely on some traditional uh, indigenous knowledge that is passed down or has been recorded by somebody in a written form at some point in time. And and it sort of accumulates that kind of knowledge from across the continent, really. And then says, look, look, these practices are similar and this knowledge is similar. Um, So uh, again, it's not all, it's material, but it's not all like smoking gun kind of proof of like, hey, climate change caused that society to rise or fall because that, because I don't think that's what climate change does anyway. Uh, climate change, you live with it and you kind of, you breathe it in as weather. We're even seeing that today. People don't believe in it unless they experience it. And so it, we have to appreciate it more as experiential um, and as people perceiving parts of it, say a weather system, you know, a storm um, or a flood or a drought in uh, in these terms of, you know, in term in cultural or in supernatural terms, um, and and not that they're theorizing or there's somebody sitting back and say we better abandon this city because climate's, you know, it's, there's a drought coming and we want to survive. Like, no, that's not the way it's working. It, it's it's the group um, living through it. I don't know if that quite answers, you know, the kind of question you're asking. It's a tough yeah. question. Sorry. <laughs> well, big questions, right? Um, but uh, I mean, maybe a related question is um, one of the things that uh, that you also do in the book. So, so you um, you know you bring together a lot of different uh, evidence from recent archaeological finds, from things that have been known for a long time, and and like you said, you sort of show us the package of things that is moving um, as people are dealing with climate change during this time period. Um, but you also, I mean, clearly in the book, you also go on this journey yourself. You know, you talk about the sites to visit and you have a few, um, I mean, there's two ways that that this kind of stood out to me. One is that you have a few really um, beautiful descriptions of um, experiencing the sites yourself. I mean, you you talk about kind of diving into the water at Aktuntunitil uh, Mugnal, this cave in Belize. And um, and then the other thing that stands out is also the, the kind of... Uh, they're not exactly interviews, but that you you clearly kind of talked to different people who are regional specialists in areas where you aren't necessarily a specialist in that area. Um, and so, I mean, it's interesting to think about that sort of reconstructing some of this experience of climate change also involves, in a way, kind of like phenomenological experience in the present, yeah. but also yeah. kind of drawing on 
you know, a different kind of experience from other, other people too. Um, uh, I think you said that very well. I'm not sure I have a whole lot, a whole lot to add. Certainly, uh, you know, as a professor and, and as an arche- practicing archaeologist, I've, I've thought for a long time, understanding comes f- from the experience of it. So even like in teaching a class, you have to sh- show people or allow them to engage their senses and whatever it is you're trying to convince them of. And, and if you don't do that, it's because an abstract notion that doesn't take. Um, and so I, I also, I think simultaneously have moved to a point where I appreciate like there is no one understanding, there's a diversity of understandings. And so I need to talk to lots of people so that I don't just convey the sense of, I have the answer, but instead that the answer is kind of dispersed out there among <clears throat> a number of researchers uh, and, and, you know, in different media and, and in both, both kind of the Western scholarly world and also in indigenous people's hands. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mean, one of the things that you, you say kind of in, you know, moving kind of towards the, the kind of concluding chapters of the book, um, you, you make the case that, um, uh, that, that, you mentioned this in the beginning, this kind of new materialist argument about kind of the the non-human forces of history. Uh, and I mean, I found that to be a really striking part of the book. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about how you see, you know, not just that people are, are responding to these things, but that uh, these kind of natural forces are actually driving certain, yeah, are driving human history in a way. Yeah, like I, I think archaeologists for far too long <clears throat> have thought maybe historians as well, give people a bit too much credit in terms of being intentional actors, you know, who are, who know what they're doing all the time and then achieve the outcomes that they're, you know, they're trying to achieve. And that, that, that isn't the way our world works. And certainly it wasn't the way the past worked. And any conversation you have with almost any indigenous elder kind of lets you realize like, well, that's still not the way it, you know, it's still, there's a, a very different, less Western way of in dealing with the world where it's not just human beings as inspirited actors who have, you know, have souls who know what they're doing. Well, there's animals, you know, there are inanimate things that maybe move uh, water. Water is a really good case. I mean, my dog thinks that water is animate. He will bark at it if it's in a stream because it, in a way it is, it's moving by itself. And so whether or not that, you know, is an organic, you know, I mean, an organism, it's still something in motion that people, um, has effects on people and whether they know it or not, uh, it has effects on us. You're trickling with the sounds of trickling water, a calm, generally calm most people, regardless of your cultural background. And you can think of other things like that. You know, lightning is frightening. <laughs> Thunder can be frightening. Uh, there's so very few cultures, I think, where people wouldn't be surprised or frightened, you know, by such a big booming sound. So I think that kind of thing we have overlooked, that the the world is in motion and all these um, um, phenomena or materials or substances are always moving. The air, the wind is another good example. Uh, and I think that for us, it's probably more of a trick of like appreciating that. I think people in the past were, you know, attuned more. They didn't have the clutter of the modern world and were more attuned to such things. Um, I'm generalizing here probably to a dangerous level. 
but it, it, you could think of a number of things that make people stop and change what they're doing. Uh, dramatic things like floods, but also gradual things like a warming climate. Uh, and and if people aren't intentionally like countering them, you know, as like I, you know, I'm going to stop that, or I'm going to intentionally do this over here, then we have to start crediting those other forces with some history-making power. I think. So, can you say a little bit about why? I don't know if anyone has responded to the book as if this is kind of a form of environmental determinism, but just <laughs> in case, could you say something about sort of why this is not that? Uh, yeah, because uh, it's, I am, usually environmental determinism takes, you know, this large scale, like, hey, climate has happened. And then this, this society happened because, and there's some black box explanation for it. People knew they needed to grow more corn. Uh, and, and it's at a scale, it's such a coarse grained uh, explanation that it, it's not very satisfying, especially to any archeologist who knows anything about any region in the world where nothing fits that neatly. And, and I think and in the North America generally is the case where you look around all the cultures that I kind of read, we, we walk through, they're all different. So it's not like anybody's changing in lockstep, except for this, like these packages are kind of moving around like we're talking about. So the determinist uh, doesn't work. The deterministic model doesn't work. In fact, you in some of the same regions, you can see one, one group kind of collapsing while another group is emerging over the same or very similar climatic forces. So it's like the climate's doing that, but there's a whole lot more going on at the level of people thing environment interaction that is accounting for then what actually happens in that location that you can't know the outcome for sure but you just know that the forces are at play and something will be changing great thank you um uh, so maybe then i mean talking about some of these the the different outcomes to some of the same climate change events or to some of the same um conditions maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit about what happens after this period. So, you know, you kind of uh, bring us into this very dynamic time across uh, North and Central America. And then what, you know, and then also we're doing it in the context of uh, the 16th century account of some of those same places. So what kind of happens in between those two? Uh, there are great changes in some places. And so there's a whole, whole uh, another climatic shift, you know, the shift towards a little ice age, and especially important in continental, in continental U.S. because of the, the, uh, the way the Gulf Coast winds and the Pacific air masses meet over the continent. Less, less important in other parts of North America, Mesoamerica, for instance. Um, so, uh, however... And and then we pick up kind of pick it back up again the story back up with uh, Cabeza de Vaca and the whole Narvaez expedition. So there's there's some change happening, and yet I'm I'm sort of look using that later expedition to say yeah, but you can still see the 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 patterns have been put into place and they have not eroded away yet. The patterns of the medieval um, period, you know, the the religious practices, some of the same cities are there. So these guys are still getting a glimpse of an earlier world, even though it has changed on them. It's not a direct reflection. They don't really see the medieval medieval civilizations, you know, as they existed um, in 1300, because 1300 medieval period is over. 
and you enter this other climatic re regime. I hope that that explains some of it. Yeah. And I mean, let me ask you kind of two questions about, um, I guess, the, the lessons from your book. Uh, so one would be kind of, you know, what are the lessons for, for thinking about climate change in the present? Um, and then the other is, are there lessons to be learned about uh, how we go about doing archaeological uh, or historical investigations of the past? I mean, it seems like you yeah. both, yeah. you have this kind of much broader scope than we tend to do, um, you know, that regional specialists tend to do, but also this this interesting move of kind of really using this Spanish account um, to understand something both in the past and in the present. So yeah, are there are there lessons to be learned about kind of method or approach that we should be doing stuff a little differently? Um, I think uh, in terms of climate change, uh, I, and, and maybe this is just the lesson of archaeology generally, like why do you study the past? Not because it shows you, uh, you know, little cool little things that people want to go dig up. Um, it, instead is to appreciate where we're going. So you have to have some reference of from the past, whether it's a recent past or the distant past, <clears throat> to understand really who you are and where are we, you know, where are you, are we headed? And I think in this case, you know, a big climatic episode that's similar to what we're experiencing now, um, and then seeing what happens across North America is really informative. I mean, there is so what the big takeaway from climate change is, boy, it, almost anything can happen, even if it's articulated. Um, it's difficult to predict, hence no determinism, but yet you know that the, there is directional change everywhere. And, and then it's like the icing on it is like, and there's like specific religious adoptions that are almost one big uniform historical process. Uh, so I, I guess that's a complicated way of saying that, you know, the, the past and understanding the past, uh, climate and how people relate to it really is still important to our future. There are alternatives. We need to appreciate there's alternatives and we need to investigate what those are. Now, as for doing archaeology, uh, I guess I'd I would say go back to your point about regionalism. Like we we got to stop being regionalists, and and also stop thinking that all change in the past is driven by trade. You know, like somehow like an economic motivation is driving all of this change. And like I think that's hard. There's hardly any of that matters, especially once you get north out of the central Mexico, where there is you know clearly trade and and commerce of of a uh, mercantile sort but outside of that it doesn't matter uh, because people aren't going after commodities they're not traveling to get um things that they want to go back home and trade they're getting powerful things so they can tell stories and you know and shore up their positions back home uh but how i mean how would you know that if you're just looking at one region and say well i've got these artifacts not, I don't really, I don't want to look outside of my region because I, I'm afraid I, I might say something that somebody's going to criticize me for. So, uh, um, but we have to. I mean, I, I think the the explanations are simultaneously local and global, and and maybe that's that's another one of the lessons even about climate change. They, you can't understand one separate from the other. It's not just climate, you know, in society or like how I live my life over here. It's like they are they are both simultaneously. 
Well, and even, um, I mean, the argument that you're making about these packages, you know, there's also, there's regional specialties. And then I think increasingly people have material specialties, right? So if you're only focusing on one type of material, you you might miss the package. I mean, it's, it's both kind of, it has some very concrete architectural uh, elements, some objects, but then it also has, like you were saying, ideas and stories and gods that... Um, yeah, you might miss if you're sort of just focused on your one type of material. Yeah, yeah. If you're treating like lithics as a subsystem, or f- you know, foodways as another subsystem or some system, and yeah, you're 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 missing it, uh, and and nothing happens like that. Uh, yeah, and I think I think that's also one of the things that's kind of exciting about your book. I mean, you you highlight some evidence that's pretty recent. You know, um, the the round temple uh, in the Mexico City subway station, um, and and so it's you know it kind of points to the fact that there are always new things being found, but also that this is a good example that there are also new ways of rethinking evidence that we've known about for a long time, um, and that the two are kind of pushing archaeology forward or keeping it. Um, increase yeah, that's right. relevant and, and you know um uh, in my career i've also especially working in the midwest or eastern woodlands generally there, there's it's, some of this is urgent that is we have to ask some of these questions now because if we don't ask them now we're not going to look for the evidence where it exists now and it won't exist in a in 10 or 20 years um, I mean, modern climate change for instance is impacting like the archaeology of the mid-continent severely and some of these sites only have a few decades left before they're plowed away, you know, um, or washed away in some other fashion. So those the big narratives drive the smaller research questions. And so another reason, right, we we have to construct the big stories in order to know what where we should be looking. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but on this subject of, you know, what are the big stories we have to construct? Uh, maybe you can tell us what you're working on next. What's the next book or the next project? Ah, well, um, you, you, there's an, of course, there's a number of them. <laughs> Even better. Uh, um, there's some historical fiction in there. Uh, and uh, I, I, it, that's a hard, that's a hard nut to crack. Um, I have a bunch of little local, little, little, filler projects like the things that i'm saying we you know we need to go off and look you know because now that we have this big narrative what about these other sites well those are on my list of things to do also you know um a big book project i'm not entirely sure well the historical fiction sounds pretty interesting can yeah, you tell yeah. us a, a the, teaser of that of what well, that's about <laughs> Uh, there's murder. It's uh, it's a, it's probably a century, a century and a half old, and it's something I'm very familiar with. Uh, <laughs> not in my family. I don't have murders in my family, but uh, stories were passed down through my family. So that's the teaser you get. Well, that sounds that sounds great. <laughs> also, it sounds like I'll have to uh, keep track for another podcast down the line. I don't know if historical <laughs> fiction's really in my my purview, but I'll make an exception. <laughs> right. Well, um, yeah, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was really uh, it was really a pleasure to to talk with you and to to read Gods of Thunder and to sort of think about these these big questions, as you said. It was, it was my pleasure. I mean, you you uh, you probed very deeply into, you know, the meaning of of this book and, and the implications of it. So I appreciate that. Great. Thank you so much.